Welcome to Mumble Jumble, where we talk about ideas with people that make the world go round. I'm your host, William Yuan Yi. Kaiser Kuo is a Chinese-American freelance writer, journalist, and musician. He currently hosts the Sinica podcast, which discusses current affairs in China. Formerly, he was a member of the rock band Tang Dynasty and previously worked as the director of international communications for the Chinese search engine Baidu. Kaiser Quo, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the podcast. My pleasure, William. You've done so many things. Your career has run the gamut from music to journalism to technology to podcasting. If you had to define your life in one word, what would it be and why? I don't know if I can do it in one word, but um, I think if I had to, I'd say bridging. Uh, I've found that in all the things that I've done, the things anyway that have given me sort of personal satisfaction, the common denominator really is that they're all they all have to do with bridging this often very wide chasm between China and the United States sort of the two parts the two most important pieces of my identity my identity is an American my identity is somebody uh, you know of Chinese ethnic heritage yeah you're the son of Chinese immigrants I'm curious how did your background influence what you're doing today? My family background has been a huge influence on me. My parents were both Chinese. They were both born in mainland China. And from a very young age, uh, my parents started going back and forth to China. My father made his first trip there back in 1975, even before Mao had died. And uh, in the years after that, you know, they went back and forth a number of times, taking the kids there in 1981. That had a really profound impact on me, especially. Uh, going back there again in 1986, I had then already started college. I was in my sophomore year. I just finished my sophomore year of college. The change was so obvious and profound that I really thought, you know, I, I need to, to sort of hitch my wagon to this. I saw the trajectory. Uh, just in those five years from 81 to 86, many of the same places I had visited in 81, I went back to 86. And just in, in that short span of five years, the transformation had been astonishing. There had been a real a kind of change in, in the light in people's eyes, I would say. It was so obvious to me uh, that a massive transformation was underway. And I think from a pretty early age, I, I realized that I wanted to be an up-close observer of that. Did you grow up with a very close connection? So you, you grew up traveling back and forth between China and the U.S. Did you grow up speaking Mandarin? Was there a very close connection with Chinese culture in the house? I did speak Mandarin when I was very young, uh, enough so that it really imprinted on me. Um, I look at my, my older and younger brother. They can still understand and, and communicate in really rudimentary manner. Neither of them has spent all that much time in China. Uh, so it was enough of a foundation that I could you know build it later and make myself, you know, reasonably fluent. I wouldn't say fluent, but reasonably fluent. Yeah, I think Mandarin fluency is one of those uh, lifelong journeys that we all embark on. <laughs> That's right. So you co-founded the band Tong Dynasty in the 1980s, um, and you were the lead guitarist. Uh, what inspired you to get into music in the first place? I, I was into music from the time I was very young. You know, I was one of those kids who wanted to play piano and violin. Um, you know, it's sort of obligatory in a lot of Chinese-American households. But in my case, it was more pull than push. That is, I, I was really you know drawn to music from a very young age. My parents tell stories about how, you know, when I was two or three, I would sit by the record player and play records again and again and again and just listen to them and then just pick up every nuance. 
So yeah, um, I've I've always been a real music lover. Had you always been into? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Have you have had you always been into the heavy metal scene? So not. I mean, I liked it. I, I you know was a metalhead when I was a, in junior high, and um, but really by the by the time I was in high school, I was really much more into progressive rock, into uh, bands like Yes and Old Genesis and Rush and King Crimson. Uh, Rush was a really huge influence in my life. Uh, later on, I mean, you know, I loved, I still loved a lot of the heavy stuff, you know, Iron Maiden and Judas Priest and stuff like that, but wasn't, I wouldn't have considered myself a real full-fledged metalhead. I, I enjoyed it, but I was much more into into the progressive scene uh, and into jazz fusion. You're often credited with bringing heavy metal to China. I'm curious, what did you find the reception of that music to be? And what was the experience of performing there? It was a real hoot. It was uh, pretty crazy. Look, at the time that I started playing rock in China, there were maybe a handful of people who could distinguish between different genres of of rock music. Uh, you know, who who knew, who vaguely knew the difference between heavy metal and say punk, or uh, between hard rock and and pop, even. Uh, you know, so a band like Bon Jovi would be. You know, put into the same category as a band like Judas Priest. Uh, it was it was just sort of an odd thing. I I think that heavy metal in a lot of ways looked like uh, what a lot of people imagined rock music looked like. You know, it had leather and long hair and and blue jeans, and I think that was that was part of it. Playing there though was a really bizarre experience because there were people in the audience just of all ages. There were, you know, really young children and really old people all in the audience. And they had in common that they would have their hands clapped over their ears the whole time that we were ever performing. It was just, uh, you know, nobody, it was bewildering to them. And I can imagine why there there weren't, uh, there wasn't anything like a a coterie of of real dedicated rock fans. You know, we had to sort of create our own following. uh, And there was so little music available in China in the late 1980s uh, outside of a really tight little community that huddled around diplomats and journalists who had been there for a long time and were able to share CDs and cassette tapes with other people. So, yeah, it was... you know, going out into the countryside, going out to the smaller cities to play was even even more bizarre experience. But I, I knew that while I was doing it, uh, that something was catching, something was 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 taking off. I mean, we you could see it happening. You know, year after year, that there would be more and more people who were more interested and and knowledgeable about the genre uh, and who were uh, really very curious about what we were doing and, you know, who, who actually appreciated the music for its visceral emotional impact, but even more for the, the, the actual technique that was involved. They were, a lot of them were, were learning to play instruments themselves. Let's talk a bit about your current podcast, Sinica. What issues do you see right now as at the forefront of U.S.-China relations? My God. Uh, well, technology really obviously has, has moved to the very center of it. Technology is such a major piece of you know trade and American competitiveness, right? And it's such an important piece right now of uh, defense. It's such an important piece even of human rights right now. Uh, so many, uh, so much of the focus is on technology. So I think that anyone who wants to wrestle seriously with issues related to China and the United States has to have a pretty good grasp on the technology issues that are in play. 
One of the biggest technology issues right now is Huawei and their 5G network, which the US deems poses a spying risk. Do you agree with this sentiment? Do you feel like there's a viable alternative? Um, well, is it a risk? Abstractly, yes. Um, is it a risk that, that is commensurate with all the, the hullabaloo around it? No. I think that that's it, it's something that other countries, serious people like the United, uh, the United Kingdom, their uh, intelligence services have picked apart Huawei in, in, in a most meticulous fashion and have decided that while it does have bugs, it doesn't have backdoors and that risks can be mitigated. I think that the United States transparently under this administration uh, sees Huawei as sort of an avatar for China's rise as a technology superpower and basically wants to see the company on its knees. I think that it's created a, a real panic that is all out of proportion to the to the, the actual threat. And I'm not, I'm not just saying this. I think I this is this is based on lengthy conversations that I've had with people who are real experts. So I I no, I do not believe that it is a threat at all tantamount to the kind of defense that the United States is mounting. So you mentioned the Trump administration. I think under this administration, we've seen a huge difference from the Obama administration and its pivot to Asia versus a policy of more isolationism. Do you think this is a temporary change in the longstanding U.S. engagement with Asia? Or do you think this could be something that has more long-term consequences? Well, I would challenge the premise of that. I don't think that um, the Obama administration ever actually completed this so-called pivot to Asia, the rebalancing. And I don't think the Trump administration has been nearly as isolationist as it would like to be. I mean, that is, uh, for a country that, that insists, or for an administration that insists that it wants to sort of withdraw, uh, <laughs> it's been pretty active and pretty forward in the Western Pacific. So, no, I, I don't think it's been particularly isolationist. I think that uh, the Trump administration, much of its policy is actually kind of perversely a continuation of some of the things that we saw during the Obama administration, at least as far as China is concerned. The, uh, the downturn in the relationship began really during the Obama administration, really in the very early years of the Obama administration. And while I think the Obama administration did a very good job in many regards of handling that relationship, I think uh, the, the real kind of pathologies in that bilateral relationship were already quite present uh, by 2009-2010. That's really interesting. What aspects of uh, the Trump administration's policy toward China is a continuation of the Obama policy? What I'm suggesting is that just that um, the the tendency to see China increasingly as a strategic competitor rather than a strategic partner, uh, that was already well underway during the Obama administration. And this isn't something that the Obama administration started either or, or that came out of nowhere. There are you know, a lot of the blame lies at the feet of Beijing as well. I think there was, um, there's plenty to go around. I think that the United States had real blind spots, did not understand the way that uh, that China was reacting uh, to a lot of American policies during the the decade of the 2000s even. You know, um, I think that a lot of this had to do with this, uh, with the, the global financial crisis that began in 2008 and China's response to that this idea, this this notion that America had really sort of bungled its stewardship of the global economy, uh, that this, and, and still insisted on sort of telling China what it should be doing, that you know, that it was in charge of, of global financial infrastructure and it you know needed 
the United States blew it in a lot of ways. So so did China. There's, like I said, plenty of blame to go around. So that's not what I'm I'm, I'm suggesting here. The continuities, though, um, for example, uh, are are things you know strategic issues like in the South China Sea, um, where there has been no real you know obvious change in the in the, the policies or in the the strategies of uh, the U.S. in in that region. Uh, I think that. There have been major disruptions as well. I mean, Taiwan is a is a, is a good example, just beginning from even before the Trump administration took office. But um, on the whole, the the main difference, of course, is that the Trump administration was willing to drag the uh, issues that it had with with trade with intellectual property uh, out into the open and, and make them the the basis of a of a, a big ugly spat. What do you think of the approach of the trade war? Well, I think it was absolute folly. No, I think it was folly. I think it was uh, really damaging to, well, it's been damaging to both sides and, and to, to the global economy beyond, uh, beyond that. I think it's managed to take us only really back to where we were before it started with no substantive changes in China. Uh, there are people who would say, oh, yeah, Beijing's been put on notice, but you know, how, how effective has that been? I think there were other ways that this could have been pursued uh, shy of actual escalation of tariffs, shy of a trade war. I think that what it's done is it has deeply, deeply damaged trust between the two countries in a way that will take decades maybe to repair. Do you believe that China... So I guess let me preface this by saying by going back to this notion of China as a strategic competitor that we've had in in U.S. foreign policy circles for a while now, do you think that ultimately U.S. and Chinese long-term interests are compatible with each other? Not easily, but yeah, I think they can be, uh, that coexistence is possible. I think there's a difference between compatibility and coexistence. There will always be friction, uh, but it's whether or not that, that those frictions can be managed. And I do believe that they can be. I don't believe that the inevitable outcome is actual, you know, kinetic warfare, is actual conflagration. So, yeah, I think at, at one level, there is a fundamental compatibility, yeah. Now, it it will take so a real rethink on the part of the United States. It will have to be, you know, in a world where American primacy is not simply taken for granted. It's in a world where... America is ready and and willing, however difficult, to make actual concessions, to uh, not be as forward-based, at least in in that part of the world, to even maybe even concede something akin to spheres of influence uh, to China, for example, within the first island chain. And I'm not sure that's such a horrible thing. I mean, if, if we ask ourselves honestly, how much shipping has actually been interdicted in the Straits of Malacca or the Strait of Malacca or the, or the South China Sea? How many people have died since March of 1988 when there actually was, you know, sort of uh, fire between Chinese and, and Vietnamese vessels? Uh, the answer is none, right? There's, there, it's been actually uh, very peaceful. I think where there is danger so far is in the, the near collisions that we've seen between American and Chinese vessels in that area. It's as a result of American brinksmanship, I think. And, you know, and, and, and frankly, uh, we, we can't go back and change the fact that China has built these artificial islands. It's not, it's something that, you know, we might have been able to do something about in 2008 or 2009, but it's, it's frankly too late right now. 
the facts on the ground have changed, and we need to be realistic about that. So what you're saying is maybe American foreign policymakers should be okay with China becoming a regional hegemon? I mean, hegemon is a very loaded word, um, I think. But in this case, there's no question that it is the dominant regional player. And we need to be, yeah, to some extent, okay with that. We need to manage that reality. Do you believe that Beijing has revisionist intentions with regard to the current liberal order that's been in place since World War II? I don't think that that it has. Uh, it, it intends to completely usurp or upend that order. I think that it has. It recognizes the extent to which it's been one of the prime beneficiaries of that order. And, I mean, I even say a beneficiary of, of the American military presence in, in the Western Pacific. I think that any sober-minded Chinese uh, historian or, you know, maybe more to the point, even uh, a, a defense official has to recognize that, that truth. Uh, there's no question that China's rise has been facilitated by the existence of a stable order of even things like, you know, a stable trading currency in the U.S. dollar by the U.S. maintenance of, of, of shipping lanes, of sea lanes, by its entry, of course, into the WTO. Uh, there's no question. Now, has China sought to, uh, to change some of these? Yes, it has. It's done so, though, I think in a very limited fashion. I think it's done so also when there's broader consensus that a lot of these institutions do need changing. The AIIB, for instance, was only only brought into being because, you know, China found so many problems with some of the Bretton Woods institutions that were desperately in need of reform and that the United States w was not willing to um, to to reform. Uh, there were rules around representation and leadership in these organizations that had to do with GDP contributions. Uh, and China should have had a louder voice in these organizations and wasn't given it. So, wh And w what did the United States do when China started tried to build high-quality, high-standard lending institutions like the AIIB? They tried to act as a spoiler, right? Uh, so no, I think that... that there are very few instances where you can point to China actually trying to upend or or just sort of overthrow the existing institutions. In fact, I think that especially since Trump's ascendancy, they have been sort of a louder voice in favor of of preserving these institutions uh, than the Trump administration has been. Which you know, frankly, they're the, maybe the revisionist power right now. That's really interesting. I, I guess some people will point to the fact that Xi Jinping and China are taking the lead on the Paris Climate Agreement when the U.S. pulled out. They've been one of the primary sponsors of U the U.N. peacekeeping forces. I think China's increasingly taking a larger role in these existing multilateral institutions. Do you think that that could be a serious consequence of you know the Trump administration's decision to withdraw, as you said, from a lot of these existing institutions? Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely do think so. I think that um, I mean, it's 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 become sort of a bland and almost banal thing to say right now for people who are critical of the Trump administration. But I think there's a really broad consensus that if the goal of the United States is to be uh, more competitive globally vis-a-vis uh, -vis China, let's let's use the the impolite word contain. Right? If if the idea really is to and it's not my idea, but if the idea is to constrain China in some way, what better way than through strengthening the alliance system, through strengthening multilateral institutions, through increasing American participation in those, through taking a leadership in 
new trade organizations like, of course, you know, the TPP, which the United States was the primary author of. But then, not, I mean, not just the Trump administration, but by the end of her campaign, Hillary Clinton wanted to withdraw from uh, this same uh, the, the this, this same institution of which her State Department was one of the primary architects, which is very ironic and, and very sad. Right. And one of the reasons for Secretary Clinton's withdrawal or la- when she did not support it during the campaign was actually a reflection of domestic popular will. Do you think that right now, Western liberal democracies are facing some internal issues, one of those being this trend toward protectionism and isolationism? Yeah, of course. I think that's uh, I think we, you, anyone would be a fool to to deny what's obvious that there has been a populist revolt. I mean, we've seen this in just about every country of the the, the the liberal West and and beyond, right? I mean, we're seeing it in in uh, some sort of the newer additions in the post-Soviet era in Viktor Orbán's Hungary, uh, in Poland, and all all over the place. This is not it's hardly an original observation, but part of the reason why that is is because of the unequal distribution of the fruits of globalism of globalization right uh, there's no question about that there's these twin forces of automation and globalization uh, really did a number on, on on the working man around the world no not around the world in the West specifically because it really benefited the, the, the middle class and the working class of countries like China so yeah um, Clinton's decision to withdraw from the TPP was certainly based on a, a reading of of popular will, of popular anger, and uh, she could not. Somebody in her in her campaign convinced her that she couldn't position herself as you know championing so, something that to so many people just looked like um, the the distillation of that global th- mentality and free trade. This might be a, a bit of a loaded question that is maybe a little speculative, but I, I'm curious what your thoughts are. So we've been talking about the U.S. pulling back a little bit. We've seen the countries that have experienced the biggest income rises have been, you know, workers in India, China, and often the top 1% of countries like the United States. As we see these trends, do you worry about the existence of the liberal international order? I do worry about it. I, I worry very much about it. I think that it is a whole lot more fragile than people imagine. And part of that fragility is a result of us not recognizing its contingency, just recognizing uh, how it was really a rare, very special confluence of a lot of historical forces that allowed such a thing to come into existence at all. And we take it very much for granted. We see it as a sort of a, a sort of baseline norm and form instead of appreciating uh, how how remarkable it is, what a product of, of history it is. Let's turn this conversation to something that's very recent and on the topic of everyone's mind, China's handling of the coronavirus outbreak. What does that say about you know China's political system internally and the leadership? So uh, let's get this out of the way first. Obviously, there were mistakes that were made in, in the early period. China was trying to balance managing two epidemics. One was an epidemic that was, you know, a pathogen itself, and the other was an epidemic of, or a potential epidemic of panic. And they erred. I think that they were, had they been more tolerant of efforts to, from from Dr. Li Wenliang, to whistle blow on this, to alert people to the danger. Yes, there may have been a, a bigger risk of panic, but maybe the the pathogen itself would have been stopped and the overall outcome would have been better. No question. But let's let's 
look at the way that it's been treated here. I think there's a tendency, and it's a very disturbing tendency, when we see instances of failure in a country like China, it becomes immediately in the minds of so many people a total systemic failure, that this is not the bungling of a of a local bureaucracy or of one institution within a broader uh, bureaucracy, but a total systemic failure. We do not do the same thing when we see the mishandling of crises uh, in the United States. So this is one of those instances, again, where we tend to compare American ideals against Chinese realities. It's never really apples to apples. We, we, it's, it's a source of great frustration to me now, and I understand why uh, that, that there is a, a political dimension to this, there, that there are elements in Chinese, China's political system that certainly do make it, in some sense, more vulnerable to these sorts of, of mistakes. But there's almost a gleeful hope on the part of so many people who are, are watching this happen that this will bring down the Chinese Communist Party. You know, if you're worried about the loss of human lives, uh, I think the coronavirus would pale in comparison to uh, some kind of uh, a regime change event uh, in China in terms of its human cost. So I I think that people really, many people just don't have a, a sense of the stakes or skin in the game, personal skin in the game, and it allows them to make all sorts of, well, quite irresponsible what, I mean, to act very irresponsibly. As a journalist, I'm sure an issue you've wrestled with a lot is objectivity and bias. Do you take issue, it sounds like, with some of the American media coverage of China in general? I I do and I don't. I think, um, by and large, most American media coverage of China, uh, it's it's done on the ground by a, a cadre of extremely talented reporters who are really doing their best and who do not have some sort of an anti-China agenda, nothing like that. I think that the, the issue is structural. It's very deeply structural. When I pick up a newspaper in the United States, the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, I read a lot of very critical reporting about the, what's happening in the United States. I'll, I'll read uh, about another mass shooting in a school. I'll read about another black motorist who was unarmed, who was gunned down by white cops. I'll read about protests. I'll read about uh, acts of corruption. I'll read uh, a ton of stories about how the Trump administration uh, is meddling with the Justice Department, is uh, creating parallel foreign policy uh, organizations, uh, is, is doing all sorts of things that we, we, would find, we do find totally objectionable. And yet, I know, and in part because of the rest of the newspaper, in part because of just simply my lived experience of being an American, living here, that things are going to be pretty normal. I'm going to look out my window and it's not going to be, you know, tires burning in the streets. Uh, that I'm going to go to Costco on Saturday. That I'm going to barbecue on Sunday afternoon. You know, a lot of things are going to be very normal uh, despite this. Well, when I pick up that same newspaper and I read the five or six stories that are about China, those stories are all going to be about things that are are not the quotidian, the, not the normal. They're going to be about the bridge that did collapse, not about the nine, 99,000 that didn't. They're going to be, of course, the dog bites, not, not the, you know, the man bites dog, not the dog bites man stories. Now, those stories might be completely accurate 
in terms of their reporting. There's nothing factually wrong with them. In fact, I think it's great that we have uh, the the sort of adversarial mentality in in our reporting that that wants us to root out truth. Problem is, if those are the only stories that I'm going to read, I'm and I'm an American who's never lived in China, who's never you know uh, who who doesn't know much in terms of historical context about China. I am going to come away with a very different impression, right? I am going to wonder why China isn't already up in arms in revolution. Because, you know, all that I know is about environmental catastrophe, about official malfeasance, about the brutal suppression of minorities in Xinjiang or in Tibet. All I know is uh, about, you know, the use of technology uh, for purposes of political repression, this is this is what I'm going to come away with, and there's so much more that's actually happening in China. Uh, Jamil Anderlini of of the Financial Times once quipped that there were really only three China stories: there's Big China, Bad China, and Weird China, and um, unfortunately, that seems to be the case. Right. I I actually couldn't agree more. I remember studying. I've studied abroad in China a few times, and a lot of people would ask me. Are you getting tracked? Is there this sort of Orwellian social credit score system that's been affecting you? And when I was in China, I found actually that I felt really safe. I felt that it was not a lot of what the of what many media reports view, as you said, as like tires burning in the streets. What do you make of a lot of the coverage about uh, facial recognition software, This these threats that people face? the government tracking and just a lot of questions surrounding privacy in general. Yeah, so I think that there's some been some excellent reporting. Again, I mean, this, this really does fall into the same category. There's been a lot of very uh, good penetrating reporting that's been done. I would single out people like Paul Moser of the New York Times. He's done a fantastically good job. Uh, and he's been looking at the way that facial recognition systems have been using, the way that uh, have, have been used, um, especially in Xinjiang. Um, but I would caution people, again, uh, on this stuff. There's a tendency, I think, uh, to, well, look, if you think back to just five or six years ago, our narrative, the dominant narrative in, in the West about the way that authoritarian politics and technology related to each other was a very different one than the one that we have now. We, just that short time ago, we believed that technology was sort of going to bring about, especially social media, it was going to bring about the end of authoritarianism, that it was going to challenge authoritarians, that it was going to emancipate people. That has completely changed. And it's changed because of a few things, because of the failure of the Arab Spring uprisings, because of the Snowden revelations, because of Russian meddling in our elections in 2016 and in, in European elections in the year previous. And of course, the Cambridge Analytica revelations of 2018. So we have now really changed our, our thinking about the way that technology and politics relate. We now think of technology as the handmaiden to authoritarianism. And so that is reflected, I think, in a lot of uh, the, the coverage of China because you know a lot of this is focused on China. Now, is part of this because China is using repressive, uh, is using technology for repressive ends? Yes. Is some of it also because of American anxieties right now about technology? Also, yes. So the two things have reinforced one another, and I think that we are in danger now uh, of creating a kind of techno-orientalist thinking 
that uh, has revived a lot of old tropes about the way we think about uh, Chinese people now or, or East Asians more generally. They're not concerned about privacy or they having a sort of, uh, you know, automaton kind of robotic ability to just sort of fall in line and follow orders. I I think this is, this becomes dangerous. I want to end with one final question. If you had the ear of President Trump, what is one thing you wish he would know, one thing he would do, one policy he would implement? Besides resign? (laughs) I mean, that's what I would tell him. I would tell him, just... (laughs) Please, first fire Mike Pence and then resign. Um, Is there a Democratic candidate that you see as having a good approach to China? Um, frankly, no, I don't. I So far, I mean, I've, I've looked at everything that all of them have said about China so far. Most of them have just repeated the same, um, you know, so-called bipartisan talking points about, you know, China as a, a, a dangerous competitor, Um you know, not that I, this is reason why I would support him uh, alone. I, I would not vote for somebody just because of their China policy. That is an important issue to me, but not the only issue. Uh, but Joe Biden probably is has been the, the most moderate when it comes to to talking about China. Um, Andrew Yang was was quite reasonable in talking about it, uh, but of course he's dropped out of the race. Biden looks like he's headed for an end. Uh, Pete Buttigieg is is very smart, but he's actually said some kind of strikingly hawkish things about China. Um, and then Sanders really worries me because I think he would uh, really kind of continue to pursue very aggressive policies on trade uh, and, you know, well-intentioned perhaps with the, the interests of the American worker in mind. But I think those are very, sh- it's a very short-term way of thinking. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you, William. It's been a real pleasure. That's all for today. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by William Yuan Yi. You've been listening to Mumble Jumble, a WKCR News production. For more information about our podcast and WKCR News, please visit WKCR.org. Thank you for listening. See you next week.